All right, take it away. Well, thanks, thanks, Ben. Uh, really grateful to you for uh, inviting me to uh, speak with you all. And um, as uh, Ben mentioned, two years ago we were uh, walking together in the downtown of Klaipeda, and I think it's a little bit older though than the city of New Haven. It was founded in 1252. Uh, so it's been through a lot since then, as you can imagine, but uh, it's, a, it's a great city. Um, and uh, to be honest, it's a little bit outside of my comfort zone to be speaking to a group of uh, physicians and scientists uh, rather than those who work on biblical texts and uh, the ancient world. But it's this good kind of discomfort that prompts me to formulate my ideas differently and I'm not going to be hesitant because uh, I think you all are here to have conversations about medicine and spirituality. And uh, I'm also taking this opportunity a little bit to explore a research area, a kind of a new research area for me. It's something where I've taught before, but haven't really done too much um, research in this area. But um, I've, I've definitely had encounters with, uh, personal encounters with with doctors uh, as a, a patient or advocating for a family member receiving care. Um, doctors who have this, have a kind of a mechanistic view of healing, health, and well-being that seem to be centered on solving a particular physical problem and without that much concern for uh, overall patient well-being or even the emotions or feelings of the patient. And, uh, and I'm operating from a set of premises that accounts for human beings as possessing both material and immaterial aspects or dimensions that, that somehow relate to one another. And that immaterial aspect of human personhood, we might call a soul or spirit or mind or heart. I'm not going to get caught up in trying to find just the right term for it but that immaterial part of human personhood. And, uh, and my goal in this presentation is to explore the concept of the image of God as found in the Hebrew scriptures, which is my uh, area of specialty, and what it might offer for understanding the task of the healing and caregiving professions. Now, the Hebrew scriptures originate in a culture that maintains certain assumptions about divine images, how spiritual entities relate to the visible realm through the physical images. And uh, the Hebrew scriptures share many of the assumptions that prevailed in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, such as those of Egypt and Mesopotamia. But also it deviates from those assumptions and, and transform some of those concepts in ways that are unique to Israel. And, and later to Judaism and Christianity. And so as we uh, explore this biblical notion of human beings as made in the image of God, I, I think we'll find that it contrasts with the sort of uh, brains on a stick conception of personhood that I think some Christian believers in my own tradition uh, implicitly operate with. Um, and mainly, I think this, is, this tends to be a Protestant problem, speaking as a Protestant, and I think that the I tend to think that Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions within that Christian family do a better job of conceptualizing human images of God as inclusive of the soul and the body, 
the immaterial and the material dimensions of human identity. And, uh, and here in pushing back against this sort of brains only view of humanness, it resonates with the losses that we have experienced over the last two years in being forced to do many things online, disembodied for the purpose of transferring information instead of the in-person experience that is so much richer and that I think we can all look forward to a time when we can go back to more of that. And so I hope that these ideas can be a resource for medical practitioners conceptualizing whole patient care in contrast to a a merely physical model of wholeness and flourishing that uh, we might attribute to a, a strictly materialist worldview. And I'm assuming that because you're interested in conversations about medicine and spirituality, you will have come up against the limits of what you feel like can be understood through uh, merely material understandings of the human person. Okay, so after that long introduction, let's take a, a journey into the ancient world of the biblical texts to see the divine images of these other cultures that surrounded the people of the book, the people of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, as we describe the ways in which Mesopotamian neighbors of the ancient Israelites conceived of their gods as represented in images, I would not want to say that the Israelite conception is completely analogous or completely the same. Rather, the Israelite conception of, of divine image builds upon and stands out from that of their neighbors. And also when I say the Israelite conception of deity and divine image, I'm, I'm recognizing that this is in reality a minority perspective within Israel that won out so as to be included in the biblical texts that survive for us today but it's likely that uh, given the frustrations expressed by the biblical prophets, most Israelites never embraced this perspective on image and deity that came to be canonized as biblical. So that's a caveat. But um, ancient peoples, uh, ancient peoples believed in gods and uh, gods that governed uh, different areas of life and gods that had, do, had sway and domain over physical spaces or lands. And uh, also, the line, they also believed that the line between the physical and the spiritual world uh, was very thin. And in fact, perhaps it would be better to describe this uh, distinction as the, between the visible and the invisible world, recognizing that uh, often invisible divine beings were constantly interacting with the visible realm that was uh, just beside them. And so one scholar writes, in order for human beings to interact with deities and to persuade them to create, renew, and maintain the universe, these beings had to be brought down to earth. And it was the cult statue in the temple, so I have a picture of uh, one here, one uh, partial statue that's been discovered, this cult statue in the temple that formed the main, most powerful meeting point between the human and the divine. This interaction had to be strictly controlled in order to avoid both the potential dangers of unrestricted divine power 
and the pollution of the divine by the impurity of the human world. So this is uh, helpful for us to remember because uh, in our kind of post-Platonic way of thinking, we, we, can, we might imagine that the image is there to remind us of, you know, the real thing, kind of like statues or icons of saints uh, in, a, in a church um, are there to remind us of, of the God, of the saints. And so we, we're not actually reverencing the, uh, the object itself. It's, it's really the, what is represented. But this is not how ancient people conceived of the images in, in the Levant. Rather, it was the, the statue itself was the meeting point between the visible and invisible realms. So without going into too much detail, the ways that these statues were made and maintained reflect the significance of the gods for the ongoing flourishing of the world and the community. When a new statue was fashioned, the ceremonies that allowed the human-made statue to mediate the presence of the deity involved the washing of the mouth, the mispi ritual, and this uh, purified the image from human contamination, and then the opening of the mouth, the pitpi ritual, which allowed the gods to eat, drink, and smell incense. So during the consecration ritual, the human artisans who had crafted the image had their hands ceremonially cut off with a wooden sword while swearing that they had not made the image, but rather that the god had made the image. Um, after the initial consecration of the image, a regular ritual woke or summoned the deity when the priest broke the seal on the shrine doors where the image was kept and opened them. The statue, as the deity's body, would then be washed, and given food and drink, clothed, anointed, and then after this it would be placed in its shrines and the doors resealed. So these, uh, one scholar says that these seemingly mundane activities of tending the deity in his cult statue were raised to a cosmic and effective level by the ritual actions and recitations of a priest. And what we see here in this uh, image is from uh, Sippar. It is uh, in, in, in Mesopotamia. And this is uh, an, an image that has actually much more uh, writing underneath in Akkadian. And uh, the writing on the tablet celebrates the discovery of the model for a divine statue, which had been lost uh, a couple of hundred years before. And during this time, this sun disk, was mediating the presence of the deity, the sun god, Shamash. Uh, but, um, but this was seen as an, as an inadequate substitute for an actual image of the deity that would have been uh, similar to what a human being looked like. So they were cel they're celebrating that we're going to have a new, a new image, a new divine image uh, very soon. And uh, very importantly, the, the human care and reverence for the divine image was perceived as care and feeding of the god or goddess. So violence and violence against the image or desecration of the image's home in the temple was considered an attack on the god himself. If an image was harmed or destroyed, this did not mean that the god ceased to exist, but that this place where the visible and invisible realm came together, the physical statue in the temple, had become profane or un, it's just common, unusable. 
And this would be a tragic event. The, the, and, and the breaking of the agreement between humans and gods that allowed mutual access to one another. Okay, so why, why bring this up? I want to focus on two dimensions of these rituals. First, it was considered essential that the image be perceived not as made with human hands, but rather born from the heavens uh, that is created by the deity. Uh, hence the ceremony where the craftsman would swear that he had not made the statue, but that it was born, born from the god. The second, the focus on the mouth and the face of the statue points to the significance of eating and drinking uh, and, and smelling as well, smelling incense as a means of fellowship with the, the deity, and also the capacity of the god to communicate to humans. And this is important because verbal communication is linked to our capacity to make moral choices. Uh, morality depends on abstractions. Words are necessary to represent abstractions. And thus the mouth of the image is a key element of the human's uh, ability to inquire of the God and for the God to make pronouncements to humans as to how they should live in terms of morality and also wisdom. Okay, so that's uh, a Mesopotamian and Egyptian, just very, very basic outline of, of uh, how they formed their images. So against that backdrop, uh, of the fashioning and care and feeding of uh, ancient Near Eastern cultic images, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, describes only human beings, only human beings as adequate images to mediate the presence of Yahweh, Israel's deity, into the world. So only human beings can do this. And the comparisons between Mesopotamian cult statues and how the Bible presents humans are useful, but we have to recognize that the Israelite texts deviate from their neighbors' conceptions in important ways. So let's talk, let's start with two creation stories from Genesis 1 and 2. In the first story, God, Elohim, is a singular being who creates and fashions the world into order by just his word. And after forming the earth and the skies, the heavenly bodies, plants and animals, he speaks to his divine counsel of subordinate heavenly beings about the need for special representatives who could image or mediate divine presence into the physical world. So this is from the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So we see three important mandates given to these divine images. First, they are to procreate. They are given the capacity to create more divine images that mediate the deity's presence into the world. 
So the, the deity projecting his presence into the world is an objective good for the whole creation. Second, these new images are to cultivate the world. They can make changes to it for their own good and for the good of all human beings. They are to be creative in a subordinate and derivative sense. And finally, they're supposed to rule benevolently and carefully over the rest of the creation. And so in this way, they serve as monarchs and priests to the world. So in the second creation story in Genesis chapter 2, the creator deity is described using his proper name, Yahweh, and the fashioning of the first human seems to have parallel emphases to that of the mouthwashing and opening rituals in Mesopotamia and Egypt. It says, Then Yahweh God, uh, Yahweh Elohim, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So in, in this chapter, in this story, which I'm summarizing, we see the opening of the mouth and the nostrils and the breathing in of life. We see the man assigned to the garden and, and commanded to eat of, of the garden, cultivate it, and also words given to him of command that you may eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. So in this story, though, there is no, compared to the Mesopotamian uh, ritual for creating images, there is no need for human craftsmen to swear that they have not made the images because humans are the images formed by Yahweh himself, made from the dust of the earth. So what does this mean? What are the implications of humans made in the image of God, or as it, uh, theologians tend to say, the imago dei in Latin? Um, most interpreters have agreed that in Genesis 1 and 2, this idea of image of God means that human existence is modeled after God's existence. But the question is, in what way, right? And is it the human soul that is like unto God's soul? Does it consist of mind and rationality? Is, is it the human body also that is somehow modeled after a divine body, um, which would be sort of parallel to the Near Eastern conception of the divine image being modeled after some form of the God himself? Is the ancient Near East, is the, the biblical idea of image of God found in human relations because God has is, is relational either in a, in a Jewish conception, relational to the other divine, uh, the subordinate divine beings, or in a Christian Trinitarian uh, way that he's uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relational within himself? Um, or is it human virtue or something else? I think, I think these views of what the image of God means fall into three categories. Um, there's first, uh, these are for, and these are from Ryan Peterson. First category is substantivist, which is the notion that humans in their essence or existence share some of God's properties. Uh, so like the soul, like rationality. And uh, the, Thomas Aquinas is a very important expositor of this view. Second, there's a relationalist view uh, as described that 
God somehow is relational within himself. And so human, human existence is then supposed to be relational between male and female, and then within the broader community as more human images are, are made. And uh, Karl Barth is a well-known 20th century theologian who holds this relational view of the image of God. And a third category, though, is the, the functionalist uh, sort, sort of view, which is, tends to be favored by scholars of, of the Hebrew scriptures and ancient Near East. And in this conception, it's the, the, divine, the, the divine image means that humans have dominion and responsibility and priestly and royal roles and responsibilities in the world. So I think that all of, each of these categories is onto something, and maybe we could sum it up uh, in this way. Human beings are made to share some of God's properties, including moral and verbal capacity. We can speak about abstracts. We can make moral choices in ways that other animals cannot, to, to our best knowledge. Um, human beings are also made to be relational, to relate to God, to one another, and to the rest of the world. We, we cannot be the images we are truly made to be if we are not uh, relating to the world. There's a reason that solitary confinement is considered to be torture. But, uh, but as we have seen from the comparisons to the divine images uh, in the ancient Near East, the portrait of humans as the image of God is incomplete without these functions of dominion and responsibility projecting the royal and divine identity into the world in a priestly fashion. And uh, as we move further on into the Hebrew Bible, we can see that the biblical version of ancient Israelite religion is what we call aniconic, which means that it forbids the use of images in worship. There is a, a symbol, which I'll show you here. There is a symbol of Yahweh's presence that is found in his sanctuary. Uh, and it is the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. So um, this is not the version we saw in Indiana Jones, but it's an art, artistic rendition of what this box would have looked like. Um, and, and yet, uh, so the Ark contained, contains not physical images of the deity, but actually a written record of the covenant, the relationship between Yahweh and Israel on tablets with physical signs of Yahweh's power and presence. And the Ark itself, this, this box, is conceived of not as the deity, but as the footstool of the deity. Um, not, not, again, not containing the deity itself. And then we have included some texts there from the Hebrew scriptures that show us that it's, we're thought, uh, the Ark is thought of as the footstool of, of, of Yahweh. So, um, so we see that Israelite religion is aniconic, but it's not aniconic in the sense that we typically think or for the reasons that some people might imagine. So there's some verses, um, verses from Deuteronomy 4 and 5, uh, the fifth book of the scriptures, that explain why the Israelites are not to make images of Yahweh. And in this verse, Moses hearkens back to when they, when they first encountered Yahweh at Mount Sinai. He says, Then Yahweh spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Um, and so, read 
uh, along th this this text, along with the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which forbids the making of images, and with Genesis one and two, we can see that Israel is forbidden from making handmade images. Um, but it's not because Yahweh does not have an image in the world. It's that no human-made image can adequately mediate Yahweh's presence into the world because human beings are considered to be his images. And this concept of humans as God-made divine images repeats throughout the Bible in the motif of potter and clay. Um, for example, in Isaiah 64. And there are also passages in the Bible that, to be frank, make fun of their Mesopotamian neighbors who worship handmade images which, according to the biblical prophets, can never see, taste, smell, or touch, despite the protestations of the Mesopotamian priests. Uh, so, for example, Isaiah 44 mocks the artisans who would carve divine images out of wood, but also use some of that same wood to heat themselves uh, heat by burning, being burned in the fire. Again, this fundamental belief is not that the God of Israel has no images, but that human beings, only human beings, are sufficiently noble and beautiful to image this deity into the world. And humans variously may or may not live up to this responsibility. In fact, rarely do humans fully live, in, live into this responsibility, but at least that is the human vocation. So, but the negative side of this, of this idea is that humans have the capacity to to de-image one another or ourselves, to degrade image-bearingness by our moral choices. And there's many, many ways that this can be done, but we do this every time we would, you know, insult others with words or harm others verbally or physically. That's an attack on the image of God. And so that's an attack on, on the deity himself. But on the positive side, we also have the capacity to participate in the enhancement or repairing of divine imageness in, in ourselves and in those around us. And this needs to be thought of both in terms of the immaterial and material aspects of our existence, the way that we, uh, the way that we serve one another, not just mind and soul, but also body. And there's many ways that we could unpack this and maybe in the discussion, but What's been particularly moving to me recently has been from the New Testament, the story of Jesus on the last night before his death with his disciples. He's spent three years teaching them many things, building up their minds and their souls with his words and his actions. And yet on this final night with them, he takes up a towel and uh, strips down to his um, to his underwear, and washes their feet. And he says that they must follow his example in serving one another. He could have used his authority as the master of the group to command a servant to do this, or one of the followers uh, could have been told to wash the other's feet if it, just, if it was just about getting it done. But that was not the point. He, he himself prepared himself to do this, stripping down to an undergarment, took a basin and a towel, and did it himself. And it was this act of reverence that confirmed 
all of the love and care he had shown to his uh, his disciples, his, his images of God that he, he walked around with for three years, it confirmed all the words and deeds that he had done with them through three years up to that point as he was building back their image-bearingness and making them who they were intended to be. So, so I just want to share, you know, I want to kind of hear your thoughts. Um, I want to just, just share a couple of, uh, like one, one personal story, really, and, uh, and then one conclusion and, and see what you think. Um, I saw this, this uh, sort of responsibility for building the divine image or attending to the divine image uh, in, in another person most clearly when I was watching my, uh, my father-in-law uh, decline and eventually pass away from a terminal illness. He had a, uh, was diagnosed in 2013 with a glioblastoma multiform, um, a grade four brain tumor. And for a while he was doing well with, uh, through radiation, surgery and radiation. And, um, but after a second surgery and round of radiation, he had a brain trauma. And then prior to his trauma, he was very, was a very verbal person. And the way that he, we would say that he like projected the image of God into the world was very verbal. He was a musician. He was a minister. He was a professor. He was a songwriter, a jazz musician, mm -hmm. probably the most talented musician that I've ever played with. And uh, was just a credible leader of people and a very just pleasant spirit and, and joy to be around. But after that trauma of the, the radiation and the second surgery, he, um, first of all, he gained a lot of weight uh, due to the steroids that he was taking for to address the swelling on his brain. And he was also uh, lost uh, a lot of his capacity for speech due to the radiation that he had he had experienced. And this was just, it was so, I could tell it was so frustrating for him to not be able to use his verbal capacity that he had had previously. He could repeat things to us that we said to him. And we could tell he understood everything we were saying, but it just, he could not come up with words himself because his speech centers were, were affected. But interestingly, his musical ability was still retained right up to the end, even um, as his physical capacity was, uh, was uh, kind of being lost. He could still play jazz on the piano. And uh, I also learned a lot from watching my mother-in-law uh, care for him. She had had her own illnesses and, and spent a lot of time in the hospital. And she was just so attentive to, to him in his discomfort uh, always pointing out to the nurses and his caregivers things that would make him feel a bit more comfortable because of what she had experienced. She knew what what it was like, and she, even though he had been the talker in the in the marriage and the um, in the relationship for many years, now he couldn't talk, and so she spoke, <laughs> probably sometimes more than he wanted her to. But it was that sort of when one aspect of his image bearingness was diminished, it was compensated for or it was it was still um, important to to kind of treat treat him as a whole person in all of these capacities uh, that he had even as they were diminished and uh, I still can remember um, when we came we moved back from Europe the first time my daughter was only 22 months old and she but she just took right to her grandfather and just didn't 
she couldn't even really talk that much and uh, he couldn't talk either, but they just spent a lot of time together and I uh, have a great photo of her falling asleep in his lap. Um, so that their the meaningfulness of their connection, um, I think reflected the image of God. They were reflecting the image of God to each, to one another, uh, despite all that, um, all their diminished or her nascent capacity and his diminished capacity. So, so I think we can, you know, I could give some more examples, but just this idea that each medical professional or really any caregiver, even to one's, one's own family or friends, uh, has the capacity to image, image the, the divine image to her patient and, and vice versa, so that the patient is the image of God to the practitioner. This should provide an even more noble and spiritual sense of what is going on in the patient-doctor uh, interaction. Uh, the physician, through caring for the patient, participates in the repairing and healing of the deity that is embodied in or in, an image through the patient. And this has value whether, whether or not the image, that, that person, the patient, ever returns to full capacity or not. Uh, sometimes we have to, we, we serve and, and um, treat people who, who never recover or never recover to their previous uh, state of health. And yet that is still valuable in, in so many ways and still a noble and, and beautiful thing. And, and I think that the physician, uh, the physician herself may receive a blessing from, from the deity whose image is reflected in the patient. And so watching the, a patient uh, suffer, but suffer with joy or to be, to experience, um, experience uh, sickness and treatment and maybe not even uh, full healing that person still has the capacity to reflect God's image back to the person, to, to, the, to the doctor and the caregivers. So that's, um, that's kind of what I'm working on these days with the image of God. And I hope it was interesting. I'm interested in your thoughts and how this, uh, how this might connect to what you're, you all have been thinking and experiencing as well in these last couple of years.